Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. So if you were here last week, uh, this is something new that we are doing. So we are having uh, our kids who are third grade all the way up uh, through middle school to stay in the service with us during Advent. And uh, one of the things that I want to invite you guys to do uh, during the sermon is join me for a sermon scavenger hunt. So you're getting a handout. Uh, it highlights some things in the sermon, fill in the blanks, see if you can find all the things on the handout. And if you do, uh, fill that out. And then at the end of the service, come and see me because I have a special treat for you, special Advent treat for you. So fill out the form, pay attention, come see me, candy. Okay, everybody got it? All right. And that's kids only. Kids only for the candy. Sorry, adults. Okay. Thank you, Mrs. Heiser and Mrs. Dawson. Okay. Well, again, good morning. Uh, We are in the season of Advent, uh, as we've been talking about and singing about this morning. Uh, I love this season. Today marks the second Sunday of Advent. If you were here last week, we kind of introduced this season, talked about why it's so important to us as followers of Jesus. A quick recap, Advent is the four weeks leading up to the celebration of Christ's birth on Christmas Day, Uh, but it's also a time when we look forward to Christ's return. So it's called Advent because Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival, Uh, and so we talk about Jesus' first coming at his birth and his second coming when he will come to judge the world and usher in fully the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live in between these two Advents. And so that's what gives Advent its kind of special uh, feel, special sense. It's marking this time for the church between the comings of Christ, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so our readings uh, during Advent, they may feel a little bit dissonant with the Christmas season. Uh, Even though we're celebrating Christmas, and we should celebrate Christmas as we look forward to celebrating Christmas Eve and Christmas Day together, um, the readings focus less on the birth of Jesus and more on the promises of God made throughout the story that God's been telling in human history uh, so that we can kind of navigate and understand how to live in this in between the Advents, in between these times. And so week to week, we're looking at different readings. And this week and actually next week, we're going to look at a very unchristmassy character named John the Baptist. Uh, if you had to pick someone who does not really embody the Christmas vibe of our culture, you couldn't do much better than John the Baptist uh, based on what I just read. Uh, you got that sense. And you'll sense that in this reading and in the readings for next week. Uh, But I want to look this morning at John the Baptist because John the Baptist really is the poster child for Advent. He is the perfect kind of mascot, if you will, for Advent. He's decked out, like we read just now, in clothes uh, made of camel hair. Uh, This is rough, uncomfortable type hair. This is bound together with a big leather belt. Uh, He has honey dripping from his mouth. He has locusts on his breath. I mean, this guy is not not a guy that you want to spend Christmas with. No Christmas party wants to have John the Baptist ring the doorbell. Uh, 
I, I, I just have never seen John the Baptist even featured in Advent calendars. I've never seen John the Baptist as a character featured, even in our Advent celebrations sometimes. We'd prefer to overlook him. But here's why John is the perfect mascot, the perfect kind of picture uh, encapsulated in a person for Advent. Because, because John, like Advent, is an invitation into kind of this place of awkwardness and uncomfortability. In, in a way, John embodies kind of everything that's going on in our world, this wildness. He lives in the wilderness, this, this untamed space, this, this kind of wild space, and he is awkward, and he is intense, and he is challenging, and that's what Advent is meant to be for us. It's meant to be all of those things. And so I want to look uh, together at John and his message. And so if you want to grab a Bible, there should be one in one of the seat backs near you, or you open your own, or on your app, Open up to those words I just read from Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at the first few verses there together. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And the first thing I want to do is I just want to look at kind of two simple questions. One, who was John? And then what was his message? Who was John? And then what was his message? So maybe you're not familiar with with John the Baptist or his background. John was a contemporary of Jesus. Uh, he was, in fact, related to Jesus. He was some, uh, some measure a cousin, a distant relative of Jesus. If you read Luke, uh, you discover in the early chapters of Luke that there's this familial connection, uh, and it's a beautiful, powerful story. But you, you find out that John is born to Zechariah uh, and Elizabeth, and there's two important things. One is they're barren, they haven't had children, and it's in their old age. So uh, there's that. And then Zechariah is a priest, and so John is born into uh, this family under miraculous circumstances, and he's born into this line of the priesthood. And so that helps us kind of begin to see the importance and the significance of John. In fact, in Luke, it says that John would be great in the sight of the Lord. There was an angelic announcement that he would be great in the sight of the Lord, and specifically that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. There's this great story in Luke about how when Mary and, and uh, Elizabeth meet and their babies are in their womb and, and, and the baby leaps, John leaps in her womb because Jesus has drawn near. This, this baby was full of the Holy Spirit. There's something anointed, something amazing happening here. It's miraculous. In fact, Luke chapter 2 verse 17 says that John will go on before the Lord, that's before Jesus, in the Spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts to the parents of their, to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom to the, of the wisdom to the righteous to make ready a people prepared, 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 keyword, for the Lord. And so we get this biographical sketch of John. I want to key in on one thing here that Luke tells us and will help us, I think, as a lens to seeing who John is. What does it mean when it says that he was in the spirit of Elijah? But that, that might be lost on us. What, what does that mean? Well, it's important to understand that for centuries, right, for centuries, God's people, Israel, uh, had been waiting. You know, Ryan was talking about waiting on the Lord this morning, waiting, waiting. Imagine waiting century after century, generation upon generation, waiting for God to deliver on his promises. And one of those promises was to free them, to liberate them, and to restore his kingdom on the earth. 
See, Israel had been conquered by numerous empires, and at the latest iteration, it was the Roman Empire. And so now, uh, they've been waiting for God to deliver them from the Romans, and there have been no word from God for 400 years, like Ryan said this morning, 400 years with no prophet, no voices like Isaiah or Elijah calling the people back to God and promising that this new king would come and save them. And so they were waiting, they were longing, they were longing for an Elijah-like figure to come because that would usher in God's kingdom. That would be the sign. So to say that John comes in the spirit of Elijah, in other words, it's a message of hope. Ultimately is what it is. It's a message of hope. It means God's preparing his people to receive their king, to rescue them and free them. All that's coming. And so to say that John is coming in the spirit of Elijah, it's to recognize that he is the Old Testament prophet tradition coming all the way up right to the moment of Jesus' ministry being inaugurated. And so he is often called the forerunner of Jesus for that very reason. He went before Jesus, in other words, to prepare hearts. That was John's role. So that's who he is, but what about his message? How, in other words, does he prepare people for Jesus, you might say? What is his message to prepare us? So look in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Look at what it says. It says, this is his message. Very simple, (laughs) very short. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For John... The way to prepare for God's coming or his advent is repentance. The way of preparation is the way of repentance. Now, when when you hear the word repent, I wonder what you think. What what comes to mind? I think for me, usually what kind of comes to mind when I hear the word repent uh, is kind of feeling sorry for what I've done wrong, right? Kind of feeling sorry about the bad things that I've thought or that I've done. But in the Bible, repentance means much, much more, we could say. And I think it's so important if we want to hear John's message rightly, we have to understand this concept of repentance. It's more than feeling bad about bad things in our lives. It's more even than feeling uh, the shame of our sin or remorse over our sin. It literally uh, means, both from the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, the, the word um, means to, to turn around. It means you're, you're moving in one direction or you're facing one direction. And to repent literally means to, to turn around, to look, to go the other way. So it's a word, in other words, of tra- change of orientation, you might think. Uh, to repent is to change your mind and heart It's to change your mind and your heart. And I love what one author said. He said to repent is to change your mind and heart and then to change your outward life accordingly. In other words, it's not just this private thing that goes on internally. It manifests itself externally. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, who wrote a great book that I highly recommend uh, on Advent, uh, it, I think it's called the Once and um, Future King Advent. That's the subtitle, Once and Future King. I highly recommend it. Great collection of Advent writings uh, if you want to pick up a copy. But this is what she says uh, in one of her reflections. She says uh, about repentance. Repentance 
does not mean just being sorry. Have you ever had the experience of a person saying, I'm sorry, once too many times, uh, so that you explode in anger and frustration and say, I am sick and tired of you being sorry. What I want, she says, what I want is to see a change of behavior, right? Every parent should be nodding right now, right? Like, that's, yes, what I want is a change of behavior, right? But in, in all relationships, right, we've experienced this. What we want is change, not just to say you're sorry and keep on outwardly acting the same way. Repentance doesn't mean just being sorry. It's transformation. It's a new start. It's real change at the deepest, deepest part of who we are. So John's message, we could say, is this then. The Savior you need is coming. And the way to prepare for him is to turn towards him. It's to turn away from the things you've been putting your trust in and finding your hope in and to turn to him. And part of that turning is in John's uh, way of describing it, and this is visually communicated through baptism, is to clean up your lives, to, to clean your heart in order to return to God because his kingdom and his king are coming. So get ready, be prepared. And so that's, that's the message. That's why John calls on them to be baptized. Again, just a note. Notice this is baptism of repentance. Uh, it's, it's a baptism of reorientation and preparation, not the baptism of forgiveness and, and, the, and the giving of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will initiate later. Only the baptism of Jesus, in other words, can bring about the, the deep, ultimate forgiveness of sins and transformation into new life. Only Jesus can do that. But John is a, a baptism of preparation and reorientation. So that's John. That's John's message. And so I want to take just a few minutes um, here in the last half of the sermon to, to talk about what, well, what is all that, John and his message, what does it have to do with us? What does it mean for us as we seek to follow Jesus together here at Apostles? And, and I want to say it means at least, did I end up with three or four? Uh, you're lucky, it's only three. Okay, three things. So three things uh, that I think it means for us today and just for us to kind of consider and sift during this Advent season. The first is this. That radical change, radical change requires ruthless honesty. Radical change in our own hearts requires ruthless honesty. So let me explain what I mean by that. John the Baptist's message should, if we hear it right, make us very uncomfortable. It should push on the pressure points in our soul. Having someone yell at you, repent, should get your attention. <laughs> it should make you uncomfortable. John knows that. That's why John is doing it. He's saying repent. It's a message that's forcing us to consider the depth and the power of our sin. If we don't, if we don't realize that we've missed his message, we've missed the role of John the Baptist, we're not prepared in some sense, for Christ and for his salvation, for his grace. So to be honest about the parts of us, in other words, that we'd rather not think about. That's the invitation of John 
the Baptist. Our pride, our selfishness, our resentment, our fears, our, our unwillingness to trust God and, and to live faithfully and in allegiance to him. All that is being brought into the light through John the Baptist. A friend of mine commented recently that most of us, most of us as human beings, we never have the courage to be radically, ruthlessly honest with ourselves about our own sin and brokenness. And I would put myself in that category because it is overwhelming. It's terrifying to take a real deep look at your own sin and how broken you really are. It's scary. It's scary. It can be painful to be that honest with yourself, especially that honest with God and that honest with another human being. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, he writes this. He says, the remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence or explaining it away, but openly admitting it. We are free from sin only when we face sin. We disown sin only by owning up to it. Sin is remitted when sin is admitted. The way that we open ourselves up to God's forgiveness and healing is not by trying harder to do better. Let me say that again, because I lived under this illusion for far too long, and I'm still prone to buying into that. We open ourselves up to God's grace, his forgiveness, his healing, all that he wants to give us, not by trying harder to be better, but by acknowledging that we can't do it apart from God's grace, apart from his power, apart from his help. That's the battle in our souls. This fight deep within us every moment of the day, that's what's taking place, to believe that, to believe that, to receive that. And so in this way, repentance is not just a one-time event. Repentance is a way of life. It's consistently coming before the Lord in dependence on him and in humility and in brokenness and asking him for the power to change what we cannot change. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you during this Advent season, as you seek the Lord, to ask maybe this question, what would it look like, Lord, for me to enter into the depths of my soul with you and be ruthlessly honest? to be ruthlessly honest with you and with myself about my need for your grace and your forgiveness. And then I want to take it a step further based on James 5, 16, which says this, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And listen to this promise. This is amazing. Confess your sins one to another it says, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. If you want to be healed, confess. That's the path. That's the path to wholeness and healing and forgiveness. And so what would it mean to take God at his word here? 
in James 5? What would it mean to find a brother or sister that you trust deeply and to confess, to bring things into the light to the Lord and for yourself and to another human being? God says that's the only way to the healing and the forgiveness and the freedom that you long for. Confess. Repent. So that's the first thing. Radical change requires ruthless honesty. Second, I think John's message reminds us that we all desperately need a Savior. He's preparing the world for a Savior because we desperately need one. We need a Savior. But here's the thing. Being told over and over and over again to repent to change, to devote your life to God, to, to experience transformation. Hearing sermon after sermon, reading book after book, Bible study after Bible study, it won't actually change anything. I could stand here till I'm blue in the face like John the Baptist saying, repent, repent, repent. And John does. And there's a role for that. John's harsh criticism, in particular the Pharisees and the Sadducees, was due to their lack of brokenness before the Lord. In their self-righteousness, they didn't believe that they actually needed a Savior. They didn't believe it. They heard the words repent and just bounced off them. And so the danger is our hearts can become so hardened that we can't, we can't actually receive this message, this call to repentance. Our hearts become so hard hard that we think in some way, we would never say it out loud, but that we actually don't really need God. I don't need, I don't need God. Well, at least not for this part or for that part. I got this. I don't want to give you this part of myself. We can convince ourselves that maybe life isn't that bad and that we can manage it pretty well. The truth is that our hearts, as Emily Dickinson said, want what they want. Our hearts want what they want. Our hearts are helplessly bent on our own selfish desires because we've given over to sin and rebellion against God. Given the choice, we will ultimately choose ourselves and the things that we cling to instead of God. That's the choice we have made and we will make left to ourselves and so rather than be honest about our sin and our brokenness, we live in denial, we self-medicate, we give ourselves to addiction, to distraction, and pretending that everything is fine. Everything's fine. Left to ourselves, the truth is we'll never repent. We'll never turn back to God of our own volition. What we need is a power outside of ourselves right, to change us and to save us. We need a power outside of ourselves to change us and to save us. And the good news of Christmas is that God sent that power into the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That a power outside of ourselves has come and will come again. A power that is able to make a new creation out of people like me. And you, 
A power that is able to soften our hard, proud hearts. A power able to save people who can't save themselves. And God's kindness, God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. We respond to his power, the power of his love. That's what Romans 2.4 tells us. It's what he's done for us in his son on the cross, paying the price of our sin, dying in our place that draws us to him. It's God's power that gives us the strength to repent. We are able to repent and to live a new way because God's love for us is so amazing and so overwhelming. It draws us to him. It draws us to turn to him. So we need a savior. We need a power beyond ourselves to save us and to turn us back to God. And then the third thing is this. True repentance bears visible fruit. True repentance bears visible fruit. In verse 8, uh, if you look there, notice what it says. John says to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, those religious leaders who thought they had earned God's favor, that they didn't ultimately, in their heart of hearts, they weren't convinced they actually needed a Messiah. As much as they talked about one and looked for one, they, they were not convinced they needed a Savior. And what does he say to them? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, real heart change. If you want to know if there's real heart change taking place, what John says is, I'll be able to see it in you, Sadducees and Pharisees, and I don't see it. I don't see the fruit of repentance because I can look at your life and I can tell. John says in verse 10 that trees that don't bear good fruit are worthless. They should be thrown into the fire. Harsh words for unrepentant hearts. By contrast, though, think about what John is saying. He's saying trees that are planted in the soil of repentance bear good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is what marks lives of repentance. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, fruits of the Spirit. What marks a life of repentance? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the fruit that a life of repentance will bear. Again, it's not just feeling sorry on the inside. It's, it's manifest outwardly in the way that we live. So here's the thing. If you want to see your life changed, if you want to become the man or woman that you were made to be in Christ, now and for eternity, this is the place to begin with repentance. That's why John's message begins with repentance. Repentance prepares the way for Christ. It did then and it does now. It does for us. Beginning each day. Maybe this is a practice you could start if it's not in your habits. You could start this Advent. Just take up the practice of beginning your day on your knees. Just roll out of bed and begin the morning by confessing your need for the Lord. Lord, I can't do this. Only you can. Will you help me? Lord, forgive me for trying. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Help me to love you more today. Just starting with that. I'd be willing to bet if, if we do that every day, it will change us in deep and profound ways. Thank him every day for his grace and for his mercy. And your heart will change. 
The Holy Spirit will do what you cannot do, and you will see the fruit of repentance being born in your life. So to end, one of the things I would say that is a fruit of a repentant heart would be a deeper and growing longing for Jesus to return. And let me kind of connect the dots here. But maybe first I could say if you don't have that longing, if we don't have this longing for Jesus to return, if that's something that's not a part of our ongoing consciousness as followers of Jesus, maybe we should ask the question, well, why not? Why don't I long for Jesus to return? I know he will, and I'm grateful he will, but I don't, do I long in my heart of hearts for Jesus to return? Perhaps one of the most profound truths of repentance would be this growing longing for Jesus to actually come back. And here's why. The more we realize the depth and breadth of our sin, of its consequences in our lives, in the lives of those around us, those that we love, and in the world... The more broken and sinful, in other words, we realize that we are, the more thankful we become for Christ and the cross and long for more of Jesus. More and more of Jesus until one day we will see him, as his word promises, face to face, with unveiled faces, face to face with Jesus in his eternal presence. Revelation 21.5 says this, Jesus will return as king, and when he does, what will he do? He will make all things new. Imagine that, all things new. When I think of that, all things new, I don't just think of like a shiny new car, (laughs) right? I think of a shiny new heart. All the scars and the wounds, all the mistakes I've made, all the people I've hurt, all the sin I've committed, all the things I cannot forget that I wish I could, made new. The world and the version of you without sin, without evil, without death, all things new. It's the vision Isaiah 11 gives us. We read those words just a few minutes ago, that Jesus will usher in a new world, and it'll be determined not by what he sees with his eyes or decides decide by what he hears with his hearts. It will be judged based on our hearts. It will be judged based on our hearts of repentance and their fruit. When Jesus returns, his justice will reign over the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be no more brokenness, no more pain, no more sin, no more evil. Praise God. I long for that. God, help me long more for that, to see Jesus face to face. One day the struggle will end. Advent will be over. And Jesus' victory will be complete and his kingdom will come. There'll be no more need for repentance one day. Praise God. No need for repentance because our devotion to King Jesus will be perfect and eternal. We will see him face to face and we will live with him in eternity forever. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord God, we long for rest We long for freedom. We long for deep joy that our circumstances cannot take from us. We long for life and life to the full, life in your presence, Jesus, perfect life. And that's what we have in Christ. And Lord, what we taste now, we will enjoy in full forever when you return. 
God, help us to be a people who long for your second advent. Lord, help us to be a people marked by repentance, not slaves to sin and shame, but free to confess our sin before you and others that we might receive your healing and your forgiveness and your freedom. That you might be glorified and bear fruit in us that brings glory to you. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive King Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.